Um, actually, let's read through verse 11. Let's do that. Here we go. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. We're going to try to cover... Um, verses 6 through 10 because they are indeed a, uh, a very unique kind of unit and, uh, and I hope you'll see that by the time we, we finish up here. I want to remind you and, and uh, hopefully give us a running start in this whole study that Paul continues to confront uh, a position, a position that in this particular historical context was most often occupied by Judaism. But that it, it, he's not addressing this too exclusively, uh, to only uh, Judaism. He's addressing it to anyone who occupies the same position that they occupied, not only to the Jew, but that's primarily who he's addressing here, but to anyone who adopted the same kind of attitude that the Jews seemed to possess. And, and the attitude was one of, uh, this doesn't apply to me. Uh, I hear what you're saying, Paul, but this, is not, uh, this does not cover me. Uh, you're not uh, describing me. So Paul is addressing all of those who would adopt such a position and, of course, saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and the Jew would respond, no, but that's not me. I'm not included in that. And that's who Paul is addressing. Now, if they happen to be a Gentile and, and adopted the same position, they would be included as well, as, that is, uh, being a recipient or at least a, an addressee of, of Paul's here. But that's, an idea, that's the mentality. And as you, I hope, will remember, he has begun to build an argument. And he's, and he's, uh, he, he's really going to make his fourth point in verses 6 through 10. He's already made three, trying to convince them that indeed he is talking to them. Uh, the first point had to do with, uh, in verse 1, about, about by judging and by condemning, you condemn yourself. Then uh, his second line of argument was, no, God doesn't judge like men, does, men do. He judges according to truth. And then his third point was in the, uh, verse 4, where he talks about uh, they had uh, uh, despised the riches of his kindness, uh, not knowing that goodness was supposed to lead them to repentance, but didn't. And then he comes to this fourth, his fourth point in this argument that he is trying to make to convince Judaism that indeed they were to be included. That's the art, that's the point he's trying to make, and he's on the fourth point of that. Um, and he says in these verses that we'll see as we unlock them or um, uh, examine them, um, is that this, this judgment that he has mentioned back in chapter 1 um, this judgment will be upon all men. And he says that three times in the space of these four or five verses, that this judgment is going to be a personal and individual judgment. And by the way, just, just kind of as an aside, um, if you've been coming uh, to this Bible study uh, since January, the whole theme since January has been this idea of judgment. And if you feel like that you've been hearing a whole lot about judgment, uh, you're right, you have. 
because that is what Paul is trying to convince his audience of, that indeed they are uh, included in this judgment. And in this text, in this portion of his argument, he is describing a very individualized, very personalized judgment. And he says that um, in, in several ways in this four or five verses. In other words, what Paul is trying to convince them of is that um, it, is not a, it is not a matter of being a, a member of a certain nation. That is, it doesn't matter that you are a Jew because this judgment is going to be personalized and individualized. Just because you happen to be a member of a certain nation is not going to exclude you from what God is up to. And I might add, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter if you're an American or even a Southern American, someone who hails from the Bible Belt. That doesn't mean that because you are, and I think you know that, that that's enough. Having a certain national origin or even being from a certain family, which was, a, which was an argument that Judaism uh, used, that is, we, we have Abraham as our father. Um, being from a certain nation or uh, hailing from a certain family uh, is, won't be the determining factor. Uh, this God will judge individually. No distinctions will be recognized as to your national origin or your, famili- your family uh, background. And, and Paul even states um, in verse 9 that far from escaping the judgment of God, notice in verse 9, Tribulation on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. By that he is saying that far from escaping this judgment, um, this judgment is going to be particularly hard on you as a Jew. To the Jew first, but then then to the Gentile. It's going to be particularly hard on you, uh, Judaism, because of all the advantages that you've enjoyed over the centuries. So, um, the point, of course, is that no trust can be, can be had in something external as to your uh, national origin or your family origin. Now, <clears throat> here, here's where the, um, the fun begins. Uh, who will, this is verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, being the good Southern evangelical that we all are, uh, those words begin to confuse us. Render um, to each one according to his deeds. Does that in any way confuse you? Uh, It shouldn't, and I I hope by the time we're finished, it won't. But we need to address it at least. But Paul is here, as you notice in your text, my text is uh, um, uh, italicized, he is drawing from a portion of Scripture. He is quoting a psalm um, and, and a proverb. He is using that from which uh, these very Jews boasted. He is uh, drawing his arguments from territory that should have been and was uh, well known to every Jew. And then he goes on in this passage to divide men up into two types into two categories, into two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, and then he's going to give us, in this four or five verses, a threefold description of both categories, of both groups. 
Now, my point is this. This threefold description that he's going to give us, identifying who's in what group, is simply a description of the type of people who land in, and, and exist in both of those groups. He is by no means trying to tell us how they got into those groups. And, and this language of rendering each one according to his deeds is not trying to tell us, to give us any indication how they ultimately got into a camp of righteousness or a camp of unrighteousness. It's simply saying that having described them, those descriptions will make it clear, uh, their deeds will make it clear of which group they happen to be a part of. Now, and, and I, I hope it'll be a, a little bit clear before we're finished. But anyway, he is going to divide all men up into two groups, righteous and unrighteous, and he's going to give us three descriptions of each. Number one, let me, let's, let's concentrate tonight. Maybe we, we, we might get to both. Uh, I want to concentrate tonight on the description that Paul gives us in these verses of the righteous. Now, gang, th this ought to be fun for you. Here is, here is Paul going to describe righteous men and women. He's going to give us three things that are descriptive of those folks. Use them. Use them to your profit. Um, you should ask yourself, okay, there's a description of a righteous man. Um, is that something that can be descriptive of me? That's what the Bible is always written to do. It's, 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 it's designed to help us discover truth and examine everything. Well, here's a great opportunity for us. Don't miss this one. He's going to give us a description of a righteous man. He's going to give us a description of an unrighteous man. And he's going to do it in three ways on each side. First of all, he's going to give us a description of their general attitude towards God. Look at verse 7. Um, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance um, in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, here's what I'm suggesting. That the description of the, the, the general attitude towards God of the righteous is that they are people who seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That, is, that depicts the general attitude of the righteous man uh, in his view towards God is that they are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Now, let me, let me kind of uh, unpack a couple of those words. First of all, the word glory. Um, we use the word differently than the way Paul is using it in this text. Righteous people, generally speaking, are seeking glory. Now, if you understand by that that they're seeking some kind of applause or praise, that's not how Paul is using the word. L let me give you an illustration of how he's using the word. Uh, remember in, um, I think it's Exodus 33, where Moses, in a conversation with God, says, Show me your glory. And then, uh, you know, um, uh, God says, well, I'm not sure you can stand that, but I will let my goodness pass by. And you remember, that's where he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. You remember that? That's where you get that song. Uh, um, um, and he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, the shadows of dry, thirsty land. That, that's, that's a depiction 
of that event in the life of Moses. Moses asks to see his glory. And God says, well, you know, no man can see my glory and live, but I will let you see my backside. I will pass by. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And when I pass by and, and I get by you, you can look up. But, but the point is, what is Moses requesting? I want to see your glory, God. I want to see who you are, what you're like. I want to know you. I want to, I want to understand uh, what makes you God. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's what the word, that's how Paul is using it here. The general attitude of the righteous is that they are people saying, I want to see glory. I want to understand what this God is like. Everything that God himself is, everything that he stands for, everything that makes him God, that is his glory. And the general bent of the righteous is that they desire to know more and more of that glory. The righteousness, the righteous man's general attitude towards God is that he seeks glory and honor and immortality. Now, we know what the word immortality means. I, I certainly hope that one of the things that we desire as righteous men and women is that we want to spend eternity with this God. But let me just mention this word honor for a second, too, because there's, a, there's an interesting statement that, that you might want to take a look at that Jesus condemns. It's in John 5. Um, Jesus, with, with, uh, with some pretty severe overtones, says this in verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Now, gang, one of the descriptions of the righteous man in view of his general attitude about towards God is that he desires honor that comes from God. And he, Jesus is soundly denouncing a posture of men who desire a, a, a brand of man who eagerly desires glory and honor from other men. We want their applause. We want their esteem. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that there is nothing more damaging to the soul. The fear of man brings a snare, says the scriptures. Oh, does it ever. Does it ever. Gang, um, are y'all all as insecure as I am? Probably. We're all an insecure lot. Given the right set of circumstances, we'll all come tumbling down. Um, we ought to do better, and hopefully as we grow, we will do better. But do you know why that is? Do you know why the circumstances that can turn on us, we can lose our jobs, and we can implode? Because it's exposing that the honor that we really want is the honor that comes from other men. You need to see the words of your Savior. He is very denun he denounces in the strongest of language. You, fellas, I'm telling you, you don't seek the honor that comes from God. You seek the honor that comes from man. And he doesn't like that. You know, one of the um, 
one of the texts that I think the Christian church ought to hear every other Sunday is a very uh, obscure text in the Gospel of Luke. And, and, and something that I'm telling you, my friends, you need to teach your children. It simply says this, Beware. Beware when all men speak well of you. Gang, unfortunately, that is the stated goal of many of us. To have all men speak well of us. And Jesus says, Oh, my friend, beware when all men... Ladies and gentlemen, there, we are always to live a life where somebody is damning us, is condemning us for the, for the kind of position. And let me tell you, folks, you, you, you occupy this position, not the behind the pulpit, I mean the position of righteousness, and they'll be speaking not very nicely of you. And if they're not, oh my, oh my, there is sickness in your soul. Because the general attitude of the righteous is that they want to know everything that makes God God. And they want their honor to come from Him. Um, nothing brings about the uh, cowardice like the frowns of our peers. Ain't that so? And it's not supposed to be like that, ladies and gentlemen. We're supposed to fear somebody, but it's not each other. You know, um, I've told this story again and again. And I, I, in fact, I used it in my office yesterday, but you've heard me say this before. But um, I'm, I'm going to talk big, okay? I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm not sure I live this out, but I talk big. So let me just talk big for a minute. Um, I hope you like me. I hope you say nice things about me. I hope you think I'm the greatest handler of the scriptures that you've ever heard. I hope you tell your friends and neighbors that he is the greatest. But if you don't, it's okay. Because I don't need you. I don't need you to speak nicely of me for me to have honor. Now, might I say, oh, that I lived like that consistently. But gang, if I don't live like that, then I become your slave. That is because you've got something that I so desperately want, and you're withholding it from me. I want your approval. I want your strokes. I want your applause. And you won't give them to me. So I become your slave. Once I come to the place where I don't need that, then I'm free. I'm free to love you. I'm free to serve you. I'm free to minister to you. Because I'm not coming to you to get something from you. I'm coming to give you something. But that only happens when the people of God finally understand that our honor doesn't come from each other. It comes vertically, not horizontally. And I'm telling you, a goodly portion of the decisions that we make every day are designed to get the applause of men. Aren't they?
We, we, we need to reverse that, ladies and gentlemen. Honor. The smile that we want is not the, not the guy on the next desk. Certainly not the woman at the next desk. I mean, that is if you're a man. <laughs> um, um, the smile you want is the Heavenly Father's. Get his honor. That's the description of a righteous man. And then he wants immortality. Now, we got to hurry. I told you we wouldn't get very far here. Um, now, that's, that's, the, that's a description of the righteous man's general attitude towards God. Secondly, the general tenor of his life, that is of the righteous man, is described in verse 7, where we find these words. Who by patient continuance in doing good... That, ladies and gentlemen, is descriptive of the, of the general tenor of the life of the righteous man. Persistence in doing good. They are people who persevere and continue in the production of good. You know the, the parable of uh, the four soils, the parable of the sower and it goes out to sow his seed and it falls. And you remember one, the seed gets plugged by the birds and the other one flings up for a while, but the cares of this earth. And then the, the other one flings, uh, grows up, and, but it's choked out by the thorns in the soil and all that business. Well, the point is this. The righteous man is not described by any, three of, any of those three. The righteous man is the one who, through patient continuance of doing good, that's, that describes the general tenor of our lives as the righteous people of God. And then, thirdly, the third piece of description, and I want to race to this because I want to say something else real quick, but the, their, their actual co uh, conduct is mentioned um, uh, it, it, who, by patient continuance in doing good. That is, that the, the actual conduct of our lives is that we are, uh, our lifestyle is one of doing good. Now, gang, we've got about uh, 11 minutes, and there's something that we need to talk about. And um, you need to understand, and, and, and I, if I'm insulting your intelligence, please forgive me. Uh, maybe you know this already. Um, but I, if you don't, this will be very profitable for you. I, I hope. Um, but what I just said is one of the descriptions of the actual content of the life of the believer, the righteous man, is there is a patient continuance of doing good. Now, on the way home tonight from work, there was this lady that was driving in front of you, and you were ugly, weren't you? Or was that on the way to work this morning? And the other day, your husband got home from work, and you bit his head off. And then you lost your temper with the kids. And then, of course, there is that, that, um, that ugly little thing that you did to your neighbor. Now tell me this. My, my point is this. Does that mean that you're not righteous? Because I'm suggesting that a description of the righteous is patient continuation 
I'm doing good. But we didn't do some good things this week, did we? We didn't do some good things about 30 minutes ago. Did we? Now, does that mean that you are outside the kingdom? That's what I want to address real quick uh, in nine minutes now. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And I'm going uh, to spout a little Greek. I like to do that every now and then just to make sure that y'all remember that I have a good education. Um, folks, l- let, me, let me read you the, 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 the verses first. I'm in 1 John 3. Now, now listen to these. This is wonderful stuff, y'all. This is fun. Uh, I mean, it, it'll, it'll address questions that you ask, I think, in your own soul. Um, verse 4. I really want 6, 7, and 8, but we're going to read verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. There is a definition of sin for you, ladies and gentlemen. Sin is lawlessness. And verse 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, here's, here's the three verses. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Uh-oh! You shouldn't have said that to that lady on the way to work this morning. Uh, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Whoa! Anybody in here want to claim perfection besides me? <laughs> Anybody? Well, then that text says that you're not a Christian. Let's read on. Um, Look at 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Do you sin any? For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might restore to the works of the devil. All right, did you see, the the key text I want you to see is, Number eight, uh, verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. Verse 11, uh, he who practices righteousness is righteous. And then that uh, verse 6, whoever, uh, whoever sins has neither sinned nor known it. Now, here's, here's the point, guys. The Greek language is marvelously accurate. When, when we talk about... Um, do you know the text in Galatians 4, 4, when it says, and in the fullness of time Jesus sent forth his Son... Well, gang, I'm convinced that one of the reasons of the fullness of time, one of, the, one of the contributing factors for it being the fullness of time is because the Greek language was in place. Because the Greek language is far more accurate than is the English language. The, the, the Greek language has ways of communicating kinds of action when it uses a verb. For instance... You've heard of that word that I'm going to talk about at Easter time, tetelestai, have you not? When Jesus hangs from the cross and he says, it is finished. Well, gang, that Greek verb, tetelestai, is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Greek language describes a certain kind of action. The perfect tense in the Greek language describes an action that was begun and completed in the past, but has lasting present impact. Did you get that? That's what the perfect language does. It describes an action that was begun and completed in the past, but its effects continue into the present. 
So when Jesus says, to tell us die, it is finished, he is saying, the thing that I did, I got it to finish way back there, but it's still blessing people way up here. And we can understand that because the verb is in the perfect tense. There is another tense in the Greek language called the aorist tense. The aorist tense is, is somewhat equivalent to our past tense, but it's not exactly equivalent of our past tense because the aorist the, the tense in the Greek language describes a snapshot action begun and completed in the past. We're not able to express that as well as is the Greek language. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. You have two verbs here, and I looked them both up before I came in here this evening. Let me just give you one of them, because the, uh, the, the one, um, this, is a, this is a form of the Greek verb poiao. But it's, this little ending down here tells you the tense of the verb. It also tells you the person and the number. Uh, because they're participles, basically. You know what a participle is? Participle is a noun and a, and a verb crammed together. But, but the point is, this, this ending right here tells you a great deal. This is a nominative, singular, present participle. That, ladies and gentlemen, is crucial to your understanding. Trust me. <laughs> it is crucial. I go back to this text in verse um, uh, 6. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That's that verb. No, actually, it's not that verb. It's the, the, the other one is over. That's in verse 8. That one is... Uh, I don't think it gives you... Hamartatone. You know what hamartia is? You've heard of that. But, but notice... Same ending. Because they're both nominative, singular, present, and participles. And that's very important for this reason. In the Greek language, the present tense of verbs communicates a certain brand of action. It communicates this kind of action. Present, progressive, continuing. My, my point is, ladies and gentlemen, in fact, if you'll notice in verse 7, the translators went out of their way to try and communicate this idea to you by inserting the word practices. That is not in the Greek text. But what they're trying to communicate to you is that it is an ongoing, continually developing uh, activity of your life. So when the text says, whoever sins is of the devil, it is not communicating to you that if you sin today on the way home from work, you're of the devil. It is communicating to you that if sin is a way of life, if it is the thing that marks you off, if it is the thing that describes your lifestyle, you're lost as a goose. But does that mean that I always perfectly persevere continually in doing good? No. You know, years ago, um, i got to hurry, but um, years ago, Larry Bird um, 
dominated the NBA in a lot of ways, but he dominated the NBA in free throw percentage, uh, free throw shooting percentage. And I forget exactly what it was, but it was in the low 90s. Maybe Tom Jordan could tell us, but um, it was in the like 91%, 90%. That's unheard of. He made scads and millions and millions of dollars because he sank 91% of his free throws. Um, he did other things pretty well, too. But the point is, he missed 8%. Now, what, I, what I'm suggesting to you is that when the, when the text communicates, little children, let no one deceive you, he who practices righteousness is righteous. Now, do you practice righteousness? Oh, you blew it on the way home, did you? I'm sorry, you shouldn't have done that. Quit it. Don't do that anymore. But do you practice righteousness? Then I say to you, you're righteous. The, 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 the patient continuation of doing good does not mean you never do any bad. And by no means, you know me better than this. I'm not trying to encourage you to go out and do bad. But I do want to comfort the people of God. That may describe you after all that the general bent of your life is that you are patiently, continuing, perseveringly to do good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is descriptive of the righteous. We'll come back and see the unrighteous next week. Let's close. Uh, did, did people need to leave? Um, why don't you head on out? <clears throat> Uh, Tom Jordan, I need to see you and Jeff. Uh, Jeff. Did Jeff leave me? I need to see you before uh, you leave. Let's <laughs> Is anybody not in a meeting? <laughs> Maybe you and I can pray, Holly. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your glorious word. We thank you for the divine genius that had it written in language that is so uh, marvelously accurate in its communication and that we as the people of God can benefit by seeing what you're saying and, and never let Satan get an upper hand on us that we're unrighteous when in fact we are not that. But Father, for those who are here tonight who's whose lives cannot be described as seeking glory, your glory, your honor, and immortality. People who are not perseveringly continuing to do good. I pray, O oh God, that you will draw them to the Savior. Cause them to see their great need of the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ the righteous. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you and good night. Um, I need to see the rights and I need to see uh, Greg and Laura. Did I see Greg, Greg and Laura Rogers?